Good evening. Good to see everybody again. Somewhere a long time ago, I don't remember where I got this, um, guy gave three important tips, pastoral tips that people have to speak. The first one is, take a sharp knife with you everywhere you go. <laughs> that has come in handy more often than not, let me just say that. Number two is, check your zipper three times before you get up. <laughs> And the third one was make sure one of your legs haven't gone to sleep, especially if you're standing sitting on the podium and have to get up. I forgot to do the third one tonight. Um, <laughs> open up to Ephesians chapter 2 with me tonight. We're going to continue on with um, some of the themes that we, that we raised up last week dealing with this issue of Jesus changes everything. And uh, tonight I want to look in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And and while you're turning there, let me just, um, let me set some context for you. One of the passages of scripture that I think about a lot, I'm talking about almost every week, is in John 17 when Jesus is praying for the disciples, praying first for the disciples who are right there in his midst. And then at the end of that prayer, he's praying for all those who are going to believe through the ministry of those disciples. And if you remember that prayer twice in that second section, he says, Father, I pray that they may all be one so that the world will know that you sent me. Twice he prays that. In fact, it's the only thing he prays twice, I think, in that whole prayer. Father, I pray that all of my people will be one so that the world will know that you sent me. That that passage, just being somewhat of a leader within the church at large, that, that passage just burns into my mind constantly. Because I think what Jesus is saying there is as long as there's disunity among his people, the world is always going to have an excuse not to believe in him. Right? He says, let them be one so that the world will know that you sent me. Uh, it is absolutely vital that, that the church as a whole seek oneness, realizing that we're all, we're all on the same team, so to speak. We're all one people group. And tonight, Paul lays some really important theology down for that, for that larger message. And so tonight we're going to be in chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 11. Let me just say, last week I started, um, I started in Ephesians just talking about some various statements that Paul makes in the first chapter specifically. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that you see working out in Ephesians is uh, what Paul referred to last week that we started talking about, and that is God's uh, plan, this, God's eternal purposes uh, that he talks about in chapter 3, verse 11 that is now being worked out in the church, uh, in the church itself. It, it is the very means by which the Lord is working out these eternal purposes. And what I said last week was, what you see in chapter 1 is that God is looking to create a family in which He is the Heavenly Father, in which Jesus is His one unique firstborn Son uh, amongst that family. And so all the blessings that are there in chapter 1 tie into that basic idea. Uh, the Father Father has called us and adopted us. Jesus has redeemed us and made known to us His eternal purposes. And the Spirit has sealed us and made us secure uh, for the day of redemption. And so, really, really important idea. In chapter 2, he moves on to another thing that the Father has been working on, and that is to create a body in which His Son 
can dwell in a very unique way. And so tonight, we're, we're going to focus on the body idea. Also, there's the third uh, element in this. That is, the Lord has been building a holy temple together, a holy sanctuary, not one made out of bricks and mortar, but out of human people. And so we'll see that at the very end of this passage as well. And then, um, we're not going to have time to get to this one, but in chapter 5, he talks about a bride that the Father has been working uh, out His purposes to provide a spotless, pure bride for His Son. And so all of those, the new family, the new body, the new temple, uh, the pure bride, all of those are uh, found in the church. That's what the Lord has been working out in the church. So tonight, we're going to focus on this idea of the new body and the new temple that the Lord is building. So if you'll pick up in verse 11 with me. We'll just start reading through this, and I'll, I'll read a, a few verses and then make a little bit of comment as we go along. So if you look there in verse 1, he says, Now remember that at one time you who are Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised. But all that is simply done in the flesh with human hands. Now let me stop there. If you remember last week, I started talking about this issue that's a major issue in the early days of the church. It's still an issue today. And that is, how do we get the Jewish people and the Gentiles, the descendants of Israel, together in one place with Gentiles, people from all different nations? And part of the barrier that was being dealt with in the early days of the church is the issues of the law, particularly uh, the so-called kosher law, uh, the foods that the Jews were uh, told to eat and what not to eat, a lot of issues having to do with the ceremonial washings and different things. And if you remember, uh, in the book of Acts, they deal with this very, very specifically. It comes up at the end of chapter 14 in Acts, and it becomes a major deal in chapter 15. And, and really the basic question is this, do new believers at that time in the first century, do new Gentile believers who were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do they have to keep the law in order to be saved? So do you have to keep the law along with believing in Jesus, if you remember that in Acts? And uh, Acts 15 is marvelous, because uh, they start a debate of which way it should go, and finally Peter stands up. And he, you remember Peter's speech in that. He says, listen, y'all, why... He does say y'all there, by the way. Uh, listen, y'all, why would we put a, a yoke, a burden, on those people which we ourselves have never been able to carry ourselves? Isn't it clear that, that Jesus has brought an end to that aspect of the Old Covenant? So right there in Acts 15, the early church brings that to a very pointed issue. And they say, no, we will not put the law on new believers. Uh, and Paul is going to go on and argue in many of his letters, Romans and Galatians, uh, that Jesus has brought the law to an end. Uh, in Romans he says that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe in Him. And so, so already uh, Paul is touching on that issue that there are are some people in this church who were Gentiles, they, they weren't descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who were Jews often looked down on those Gentile peoples. Uh, they called them the uncircumcised, which was... Um, that's a nasty word in the ancient Near East. Um, you don't want to be called that. I'm not going to go too far into that tonight. If you don't know what's going on there, go ask somebody. <laughs> we don't want to focus on that tonight. But anyway, uh, verse 12. Look at, look at what Paul says about the Gentiles at this. That is, those people who are descended from any nation other than the nation of Israel. 
He says, so at that time, you were without the Messiah. And so they, were, they didn't have Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Look at that list. Let me read it one more time. The Gentiles, the peoples from the nations, they were without the Messiah. They were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. They were foreigners to the covenants of promise. They were without hope and without God in the world. That's a terrible list. And let me tell you, the, the reality of that is so, again, it's so interesting how some of the stuff we read in the, in the confession tonight ties into this, the, the, the fate of those who have not heard about Christ and whatnot. Here, Paul kind of emphasizes what we just talked about. That is, if people don't know Jesus, they're without hope and they're without God in the world. It's a terrible situation to be in. And one of the things that I think of historically, and I hope you all think about this ever so often, just what a blessing it is to be on this side of the cross rather than on the other side of the cross. Because if, if there had been an America at that time, which clearly there was not, but if, just take any of the nations that were in existence at, at that time. Before Jesus comes and before the gospel goes to the nations, the only way you would find out about the one true God is if you had some kind of access to the nation of Israel itself. Think about how many people that that accepted in the world who did not know the one true God. And listen, y'all, I know that raises all kind of theological questions, major theological questions, bigger ones than I can deal with. Uh, but the Lord's got all that under His control. The main thing, though, now look at what Paul's doing here. He wants to really emphasize the point that without Christ, what God has done in Him, we were excluded from the only means by which we could know God and find salvation. And then verse 13, he has a but. In Paul's letters, you're always looking for the big but. Uh, capital B-U-T. Uh, he, he, in almost everything he writes, he will make a theological statement, and then he'll give this, this hinge point, this turning point. He, he, he usually gives you the bad news first, and then he'll give you a but and tell you the good news. And so this is one of them. Uh, he's already had one earlier uh, in chapter 2, but this, this is the second one. So he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Now that, that ties into the things that we've talked about earlier in this series. The, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us. It's made us whole. Uh, his blood has also been offered in the heavens. Uh, not just covering over our sins, but actually removing our sins out of the equation. So here, now, something else that Jesus' blood has done for us is it brings us near. It brings us near to God. Now, let, let, let me tie this together with the next couple of statements here. Because the things Paul, Paul says here are, I think, very important. Verse 14, For He is our peace, who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. Now, let me say everything Paul says there, 14 and 15, touches on one of the most controversial theological topics in modern theology. And I'm not going to go too far into the controversy. I'm just going to 
uh, lay out what Paul says here. And I'm going to play my hand on where I fall in on this larger controversial issue. But, but notice the argument that he makes here. Uh, the basic argument is this, is that, that Jesus, through his blood, he has taken the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's taken the Gentiles, the peoples from all the other nation groups, and he has made them into one people group in his body. One people group in the body of Christ. Now notice what he does not do here. And here I'm going to play my hand. He does not say, right? He, he does not say that the Gentiles have been engrafted into Israel. He does not make the point that the Gentiles have now been placed in Israel and that's how they find their salvation. Nor is he making the point that the Gentiles have, or that the Israelites have somehow changed uh, in terms of their national, ethnic identity here. What he's arguing is that he's taken these groups and he's created something entirely new with those two groups. So that, that the church is something entirely new in the Lord's program. It's something that exists through the work of Jesus, through His blood, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we could go to other passages and, and see some of the details on things that make the church unique. But here, I think Paul's argument is, is fairly compelling, both in terms of what he does say and what he doesn't say here. Also, uh, last week we read, if you, just, if you look over a couple of verses into chapter 3, uh, verse 5, Paul is talking about this mystery, this secret that has now been made known by revelation that was given to him and the other apostles and the other prophets in the New Testament. And in Ephesians 3, 5, uh, this mystery uh, is this. He says, now, now, this mystery was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And it's this, verse 6, that the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you can see Paul's argument worked out in this letter. That the Jew and the Gentile, they've been brought together into something entirely new, and that's in the body of Christ. And this is where we get this incredible idea in the New Testament, that the body of Christ is not just Jesus' physical body that he inhabited when he became human, second person of the Trinity, taking on human flesh, doing his earthly ministry, which is now in, by the way, uh, something I teach in my classes that people haven't really thought about in some detail often, is that right now at the right hand of God the Father, there is a human being, Jesus Christ. When he ascended back into heaven, he did not cease being human. Now, he's in a resurrected body. He is God in a resurrected human body. But he's a human nonetheless. That just blows my mind every time I think about it. It also, if I could take a rabbit trail for just a second, it also blows my mind when I think about these eternal plans that God was setting in motion and thinking about what was going to have to happen when Jesus entered into history, entered into human history, to, to, to give his blood as a sacrifice and as a ransom. And when the Lord God and them were planning that out, 
and then, and then the Lord God begins to uh, shape us and form us in Genesis 1 and 2, which as, as Seth prayed tonight, we know that the Lord God is active in the creation, but we also know that everything was created by, through, and for Jesus. And when we think about him taking the dust of the ground and shaping a human body, out of that dust, based on the plans that they had already set in motion, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. They were shaping a body that would be fit one day for the second person of the Trinity to inhabit and inhabit it forever. Think about that next time you're thinking about your body. That this, that this body was made literally to hold God himself. That's why it's formed the way it is. So Jesus had that physical body. He, he indwelt a body like ours, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. Here he's talking about his spiritual body. It, it's a new body composed of Jew, Gentile, people from all the nations, brought together in one group, united together. And this becomes such a major part of Paul's theology, as you know. And, it, and it's also, I think, the insight that Jesus gave to Paul when he was instructing Paul over Paul, these are the kind of things you're going to have to get people to think about so they can understand how they are meant to be one in me. They are all part of one body. In Corinthians, he makes the argument that some of us are fingers and some of us are part of the hand, some of us are ears, some of us are eyes, but we're all part of one body. And the body can't do without anything that's part of it. Paul also uses that argument in Ephesians 5, that he's placed each of us in the body for specific purpose, that as we all work together, the body will build itself up in love. And so one of the major ways that the church is referred to is referred to as Christ's body. And that's the argument Paul's making there in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Also, right in, um, right in the middle of that, and this is such a big issue, I'm just going to mention it. Part of what Jesus does is he makes the law completely ineffective. He completely does away with the old commandments under uh, the old system, under the old Mosaic Code. Uh, and thank goodness for that. You and I don't have to keep the 613 commandments of the law. You all know there's 613. Most people only think of the Ten Commandments. And yes, it started, well, really there was only one commandment in the beginning, right? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then when you can't do that, you have to get more commandments to illustrate how you're breaking that commandment. Well, these are the ways that you're not doing what I told you to do. And then when you break those ten... Guess what you get? You get more commandments. When you break those, you get more commandments. This is a cycle you see in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. As, as the people transgress, they get more and more and more and more laws. So that by the time that whole thing's done, there's 613 commandments. I really think the only reason there's 613 is God got tired of giving them commandments. I mean, if he kept on going to Jesus, there'd probably be 600 billion commandments by now, I'm guessing. Think about our tax code, right? Why is our tax code so big? Because every year somebody figures out a loophole, figures out how to break it, and they have to come up with more law to say, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that. So anyway, uh, Jesus has removed all that. He's taken all those laws out of the way. One of my favorite statements in all the scriptures, I think Mark is the one that... um, 
one that records it. It's where Jesus is talking about, listen, it's not, it's not what goes into a man. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Uh, in other words, certain foods and whatnot. But it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person because that person speaks from the heart. And when they speak, it reveals that your heart's all kind of wickedness. And, uh, and Mark just makes a little offhand statement. And in saying these things, Jesus declared all foods were clean. Right? Jesus, who is the lawgiver, at that moment, all of those laws having to do with don't eat catfish, don't eat donkey, don't eat horse. We don't have any problem with the horse and the, and the donkey. But man, I don't know about you, I'm kind of glad fish is back on the menu. Some of the fish. Pull pork. Swine's back on the menu, right? We uh, eat that good stuff. So, so Jesus, uh, Jesus removes the law. Uh, he, he removes the law, which could only separate us from God. Law, law can never help you keep what it's trying to do. That's its real weakness. All law can do is point out where you've broken it. As you're driving home, take note of the speed limit sign. There's nothing inherent in that law that's going to help you drive the speed limit. In fact, the minute you see the number, your mind is immediately calculating how far you can drive over that limit without getting a ticket. Right? That's transgressing the law without penalty, which is what good sinners do. And the older we get, the better we get at those kind of things. But anyway, so, so Jesus has just removed that altogether. Uh, he has, he, he's made that of no effect so that he can, so that he can uh, tear down this barrier between the Jew and the Gentile. Now there's nothing that separates those, those people group. So when they all get together... We can all bring catfish and pull pork and everybody's happy. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, verse 16. Now, look, look at what he goes on to do. So he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. What Jesus is doing is, is he is rendering completely ineffective probably one of the greatest, and if I could use a, a word that I don't really believe in, but it, it kind of applies here. He, he, is, he is bringing to, the, to an end one of the greatest racial divisions that has ever existed in human history. And in reality, it's the only racial division that's ever existed. The difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, those people were set apart, marked apart. apart. The Jews... The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were God's people. They were God's nation. They are God's nation. Uh, the Gentiles, they were not part of that people group. And so there was a vast divide. And one of the things that separated them were the clothes they wore and the foods they ate. Jesus has put an end to all that. So that now these two people can come together in one body. Read on. Uh, boy, and we could spend forever, uh, a long time, talking about how he does that. Notice... And I'll just point it out here. He does that uh, through the cross. He put the hostility to death by it. Now, I'll come back and say a little bit more about that in a second. So, verse 17. So, when the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away. Those are the Gentiles. And peace to those who are near. Those are the Jewish people. 18. For through him... Through Christ, through Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. See that? There is, that's tying back in to what he made the points about in chapter 1. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Right there in one verse. Paul's Trinitarian theology. We have access to the Father by the Spirit through Jesus. Why? Because God is creating this family. 
in which he, he dwells and has fellowship with in a unique way. Also a body that he is related to through Jesus here. Verse 19, he goes on to say this, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Notice he doesn't say fellow citizens with Israel there. You see that? Now we're fellow citizens with the saints. We're fellow citizens with all the people that have been saved all throughout the history of the Bible from Adam on. Those are the saints. Now we are citizens with them because this is entirely something new that God is doing in the people's midst here. And so oftentimes um, we'll talk about the saints, uh, those who truly are God's people. Because as you know, and we talked about a little bit about this last week. Just because somebody is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, that does not mean they get a free ticket into heaven. You have to exercise the faith of Abraham in order to be accounted righteous, as Abraham was. Paul makes that argument. Moses makes that argument of all people in Deuteronomy. He makes that argument very plainly early on. Uh, so here... It's not that they've been made citizens of Israel. They've been made citizens with the saints and members of God's household. See that? Something new here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now notice, Paul is shifting images here. We move from a body to a household and then finally to a sanctuary, a temple. Verse 21, so the whole building being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling. You need to underline that. You are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. One of the major themes that goes literally from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, and it's, it doesn't always use this language, but the ideas are there. And that is that the Lord God desires to dwell with His people so that His people will know Him and see Him and be in His presence forever. And so, yeah. God with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then you get the whole period of Israel with the the tabernacle and then the temple. And then, of course, that comes to fruition in the book of Revelation with the new heavens and the new earth. When all of God's people will dwell in his midst, they're together with him, they'll see his face, and he'll have uh, intimate fellowship with him. That's the whole point. And the church now is just a little taste of that. That God has brought us together so that we could be one in one body in Christ, something that had not happened before Jesus came on the scene. Jesus has broken down the old dividing wall. He has brought the, um, uh, brought the old covenant to an end. He started a new covenant. He's now got all peoples united together in his body. And that is so, as Paul says there, so that we can be built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So God can dwell in us and amongst us and through us. And as we do that, that Spirit is constantly seeking and yearning to make us one in heart and mind so that we realize we're all part of one another. And as we start to think that way and, and act that way, the world looks in on us and says, wow, I want part of that. Because I don't see that anywhere else. You remember that's what happened in the early church. Look at how much they love one another. Look how they take care of one another. 
There's nobody who's going hungry. Did you hear about that dude? He sold everything he had and gave it to the church. What kind of people is this? What is going on here, right? Those are the kind of things they said about him. Paul, in his, in, in his other letters, both in Colossians, also in Galatians. Let, let me read the one from Galatians. Uh, and I'll, I'll make a point about this as we close out. This, this, is, this is the practical application of this strand of theology. Uh, very similar argument that Paul's making in Galatians. In fact, Galatians is far more powerful in terms of Paul's argument that Jesus has brought the law to an end and now we're related to, to God on the basis of faith in Christ. And then uh, he says this. This is Galatians 3.27. Um, he says, For as many as you as have, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. And so, now listen, y'all all know this verse. Listen to it though. There is no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Here, there's no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no female. In fact, if you go look at the passage in Colossians, he said there's no barbarian, there's no Scythian, there's no slave, there's no free, right? All those, all those social distinctions have been broken down. Now, now y'all know Paul is not saying those things are invalidated. Clearly, uh, we still recognize the fact that, yeah, some people are Jewish, some people are Gentile. Uh, there are women, there are men. Contrary to what popular culture says, there is such a thing as a woman, there is such a thing as a man. But those distinctions don't matter in the body of Christ in terms of our relationship with God. And, and I think this is, this, is, this is in part, in my mind, part of the genius of the early church. And, and oftentimes, I've thought about this theological move in the context of the country in which we live now that is so divided over so many different things. And, and one of the questions I ask is, especially if you church, study church history, how did the church remain united for almost the first uh, 450 years of its existence? How did it do it? Right? In fact, it really didn't have a major split until almost a thousand years after Jesus. Now, there were some fractures that were starting to have, but, but by and large, there was always a fight to, we can't separate too far because we're one in Christ. And I think part of the genius of Jesus setting up his church this way, where there's no Jew, no Gentile, there's no such thing as a hyphenated Christian in Christianity. You don't get to be a Jewish Christian. You don't get to be a Gentile Christian. You simply get to be a Christian without any qualification. And now all of a sudden, this does something incredible. Whenever I hear about another brother or sister suffering in the faith, and they are simply a Christian, their suffering becomes mine. Now it's part of my story. It's part of something that I'm called into because that's my people group, right? That's my family. That's my temple. That's my body. As long as you have these hyphenated things. Now, don't get me wrong here. But in our country, think about, think about how many hyphenated Americans we've got. Right? And you see this played out. Why is there so much division in our country? Because everybody thinks they're a unique form of an American. What would happen if all of a sudden we got rid of all those hyphenations and just let ourselves be Americans? And then all of a sudden, everything we hear, we realize, wait a minute, that's my people talking. 
It's not somebody else that's in another group that's saying, oh yeah, well they're a blank American, so I don't have to listen to them anymore. Right? That's what the early Christians did. And that's what we, let me say this, that's what I think we have to get back to the Spirit to in Christianity as a whole. We have too many hyphenations. Uh, so many times people uh, ask me, they, they find out a Christian, I, I, listen, this is no joke, I had this ask me, and they would say, well, yeah, but what religion are you? I said, well, I'm a Christian. And they'll say, no, 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 I mean, are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you whatever? And I look at them and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not any of those things. I hadn't found one of those that fit yet. Uh, in fact, I've got kicked out of every one of those that I want to claim to put on there. I don't fit into any of those things. And it, right, So get your mind around that. Well, what does that mean? And that's what Jesus, I think, calls us to be. He calls us to see one another as part of the same body, the same family, the same people group. And as we do, it lays the foundation for us all being one in heart and spirit and mind, exactly the way Jesus wanted us to be. And, and I think the church has got to get, y- y'all know, um, that Christianity being a valid voice in culture and society in the West, those days are over. Those are over. Um, we've been pushed out of the public market. And, and I think by and large it's because we have become, we've gotten derailed from the things that really matter most to get bogged down in arguments that don't matter eternally. And we've neglected things like this. These things that Jesus prayed for us that we've neglected, that Paul has taught and given us the theology for, that, that we've got to keep on the forefront of our thought. No, we are one body. We are one temple. We are one people. We are one family. And therefore, we love one another. Whatever happens to you happens to me. Whatever concern you have, that should be my concern too. And y'all, I know I'm preaching to the choir here uh, in some part. Um, I look at the faces that are here, and I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. These are all the people who may happen to listen to it on, on the web or something. They really need this tonight, you know what I mean. Um, but nevertheless, uh, really important, and all this happens through Jesus, who did away with the old, and now he's done something new, entirely new. And uh, we'll, we'll keep on going from, from there next week as we come back. Let me pray for us and we will be dismissed. Thank you all for your time. Father, we, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and um, bless us through your word. And Lord, as we leave here, I pray that we can go back and read some of these passages that we've gone through very quickly tonight. To, to think about the reality that you have before us, and that is uh, your great desire for us is that we would be one, we would be united in heart and mind, that we would uh, think of others more important than ourselves, as Paul tells us in Philippians. Uh, not, not completely worried about our own uh, desires, but instead giving of ourselves sacrificially as Jesus did, so that we can become one. Lord, I, I truly believe that getting back to this spirit of oneness is absolutely essential for us as your people so that our voice can be heard in our culture and in our society. It can be experienced and seen all over the world uh, as we think about all of our brothers and sisters, not just in Memphis, not just in America, but but all over this entire uh, planet that are united by the name of Jesus, united under his blood, cleansed by his blood. And Father, your desire is that we should be one so that the world will know you sent your Son as our Messiah and as our King. 
And so, Father, we want to take these things to heart and we want to live them out and uh, not just go from here and, and not think about them anymore. So we pray through the hope of your spirit that you'll bless us and help us in all the ways that we need help. And I pray that you'd bless all of us here tonight as we leave. Keep us safe throughout the week and keep us uh, wise to the schemes of our adversary. And we thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship we have with one another. And give you all praise and thanks through Jesus, our great Savior. Amen.